Well, I, uh, I bought seven more boxes of Girl Scout cookies the other day. It is a highly convenient situation. Our, our neighbors, the kids two doors down, are selling them. And they even take Venmo now. <laughs> I got all Samoas this time. I felt like there was no reason to fool around with the others that are so clearly inferior to the one true cookie. Welcome to Lent, y'all. A week ago, I once again found myself internally debating whether to keep self-denial in our Ash Wednesday liturgy. It is front and center in the words our tradition has passed down through the centuries. In the invitation to the observance of a holy Lent, by self-examination and repentance, by prayer, fasting, and self-denial, and by reading and meditating on God's holy word. These are loaded words, fasting, self-denial. Too often they have been used for ill, used to celebrate poverty and glorify suffering. And yet I, I have to believe there's still some good possible in this kind of practice, in, in slowing down to notice what we attempt to fill ourselves with. Notice how we might try to mask our deeper longings. It's those fundamental hungers that Jesus is contending with this morning. He's just been baptized, and through the, the splashing and the din of the crowd, a voice breaks through from above. You are my son, the beloved and then, right then, full of the Holy Spirit, he is led by that same Spirit out into the wilderness. He is seemingly alone. He is desperately hungry. And as the days stretch into weeks and longer yet, the devil comes to wrestle with him. I suspect that Jesus has been chewing on these alluring questions for a while, though, already. He must have been considering how he might satisfy his hunger, how he might feel a little more certain of his control, his connection, while he's out there and sees no one else. The devil points to these basic longings. Yes, around physical comfort, literal hunger. But he also understands the way we humans carry a visceral desire for power, for security, for belonging. Control your life. Keep yourself and your loved ones safe. Be absolutely sure that you are loved? Yes, please, by all means. 
Suddenly taking a six-week break from chocolate seems a little more appealing to me. It's, it's sort of the perfect level of self-denial in that it's tough, but, but maybe not too tough, not too searching. It makes me wonder if, if these common ways into Lent can, can be a red herring sometimes, conveniently keeping our attention away from what might be a more dangerous temptation to grapple with. As I sat with the devil's questions this week, turning them over in my hands, looking at them from different angles, I was put in mind of another question, one that I have encountered many times now. It generally comes with, with both kindness and striking honesty about the, the confounding mystery of it all. It's this. With all the pain that comes in life, how can we still believe in God? How can I believe in a God who would let awful things happen? I've been hearing this question surging again, heavy on an awful lot of hearts these days, as we all take in more news from Europe. How can God let war happen? As shells fly, as nuclear power plants are threatened, as as families flee with babes in arms and others are stranded in the line of fire, where is God? If God indeed loves the people of Ukraine, why would God let this happen? And if God loves the people of Russia, why would God allow their military to be sent in to inflict such destruction and to be hurt and killed themselves? Simply put, how can we believe that God loves That God is present and active when tragedy overwhelms us. It is perhaps one of the oldest theological quandaries. And it's, it's what the devil poses to Jesus, how the devil taunts him. You are famished, Jesus. I can see your bones. Turn these stones to bread. The implication is that if God were truly present with him, Jesus would not have his stomach tied in knots with this searing hunger. The second question is like the first. Jesus, he whispers, Jesus, you could be powerful. You could have everything, control everything. Again, the suggestion is that if he is without, if Jesus lacks fame or earthly authority or great wealth, it must be because God made it so. At best, as negligence, and at worst, as outright punishment. 
It's this third temptation that cuts deep, though. It is woven so thoroughly into the way we make sense of how our lives unfold. If you are truly the beloved of God, the devil starts. If you know that you belong to God, then surely God will swoop in to keep you safe. Do you believe you are beloved? Prove it. But Jesus doesn't just answer. He shows that the devil's question is broken. The premise does not compute. It does not speak to the God Jesus knows and serves. The truth of our belovedness cannot be measured with a ledger of how good we have it, how much suffering we've been able to dodge. Jesus resists the temptations the devil dangles in front of him because he can remember back to the spirit naming him as beloved and belonging to God. There on the banks of the Jordan, he hadn't done anything to deserve it. He hadn't accomplished anything to earn it. He simply was. And that belovedness did not arrive with what many might identify as blessing. There was no pile of wealth, no elevation to great power and control, no great spread of creature comforts. No, quite the opposite. The spirit The Spirit fills him up and leads him out to this desolate place. But what comes clear in our gospel today is that Jesus is not abandoned there. He stays rooted in who and whose he is. This is the overarching temptation of them all. It's concluding that if we are suffering, it is because God made it so. Whether by apathy or absence or cruel design, this temptation quietly and persistently suggests that our pain is evidence that we are not beloved of God. And friends, it is a lie. In his work ahead, Jesus will break bread with the hungry, but he does not end hunger. He heals some people and not others. He he raises his friend Lazarus, but does not keep him from dying again. He allows the powerful to choose death-dealing ways over and against love again and again but not because he is absent or because he doesn't care or because he is punishing them. I don't know why it is. I have some guesses. But what I do see is that Jesus keeps going to those places of pain, drawing near to those who suffer and joining them there, even when he does not fix the problem. The devil wants to convince us that when life gets hard, it means that God is probably very far away. It can be so tempting to believe, and it does not lead us 
into life. Maybe fasting can help focus our attention. Maybe giving up chocolate or other luxuries can help us notice what it is to do without and how God is entirely present there. But it's that last part that really matters, however we arrive there. That's the call I hear in this gospel, to to draw near and wrestle with this pernicious lie. Could we give that up for Lent? Give up the, the seedy whisper that the hunger and longing and heartache of the world is either all God's doing or all God's absence? And maybe more critically, Could we take on a practice of trusting this belovedness as as our starting point, our truth, our shelter? The question Jesus shows us is broken. You have always been beloved of God. You have always belonged to God. It's who you are. In great pain and tremendous joy, both. This is the truth. Take that on for Lent, friends. This is what will carry us through the wilderness.